You know, politics can lead to some interesting conversations, right? And by, by interesting, I mean fights and arguments, uh, right? 73-year-old woman, state of Washington, this last election cycle, found out that her husband voted for a candidate that was opposite of the candidate that she voted for. And she told the, the local news media that was, quote, unquote, a deal breaker. And she filed for divorce from her husband because she would rather be 73 years old and alone than to share a house with somebody who had a different political ideology than her. That's, that's not entirely too crazy. There's a recent poll that was done during the elections, and, and it showed that 16% of Americans have stopped talking to either a friend or a family member. They've cut off communication because of politics. And that a full 30% of people admitted that they have not just stopped communicating, but ended a relationship with a friend or a family member. I, I, we will not be connected. We not, won't even talk. I'm not going to acknowledge that you exist because we have political differences. And politics tends to divide more than it does unify. If, if you're on social media, you've, you've probably seen that. If you've ever read a, a news article online and then gone down to the comments, you've sensed the tension and the division, right? And it's, it's not just politics that divide us. We, we're divided by, by all kinds of other things. We're divided by how we see God and humanity. We talk about the, the definition of marriage, and the definition of marriage divides us. We talk about abortion and life, and, and it divides us. Now, I'm not talking about a division between right and wrong. The scripture is clear about what is right and wrong in, in those, those, those issues. But I'm talking about a division between neighbors. I'm talking about division between family members. Because we, we would say, hey, even though I, I understand the scripture teaches this about marriage and it's right, no question there, but you don't believe that, there is a division, but we, we've, we've moved that division forward where, you know what, we now have relational dissonance. I can't be your friend, I can't be your neighbor, I can't have a, a civil conversation with you. And if we just boil it down, we won't ever say this because we're, we're good God-loving people, but I can't really love you like I love other people because there's division in the way that we see God and the way that we see humanity. We're divided by the color of our skin. And I, and I know most of us don't want to agree with that. We don't want to admit that. But, but here, if, you, if you think that's not the case, why don't you do a little experiment? Find you a group of people that are a multicultural group of people. Find some African-American people, some Hispanic people, some Caucasian people, some people of all different ethnicities. And just, just find them. It might be work or something like that. And around the, the water cooler at, at lunch, just, just ask a question like this. Hey, what do you feel about Black Lives Matters? Ask, what do you feel about immigration? Ask that group of people who are different than you, multi-ethnic group, ask them, what, what do you feel about institutionalized racism? And you will quickly find that there is division in our country. There are a lot of issues out there that cause us not to love well. And you know, it's not just those, it's not just those hot button issues. 
I mean, we're divided by some silly, silly things. Now, our church is a church that reaches all over Williamson County. I know in our student ministry, we have students that are in Leander School District and Round Rock, uh, sometimes Pflugerville and Austin even, Gerald. But, but in, in the Georgetown community a few years ago, we, we opened up a second high school. And when we opened up that second high school, there, there, were even, there were people who so wanted to be a part of one high school other than another high school, they sold their houses and moved to another house so they could be in that group. I mean, I kind of get that. I I grew up in Killeen. My grandfather went to Killeen High School. My dad went to Killeen High School. I went to Killeen High School. If I lived in Killeen, well, my kids probably wouldn't go there, but I would want them to. Like, I mean, part of me would, you know, because I, I get that. But what we saw during that time in our community, and I saw it as, as, a, as a youth pastor and working with not just teenagers, but moms and dads, there was a division in relationships because you go to that school and I go to this school. And, and when I say it like that, that just sounds silly. I understand the Friday night football game. I understand the, the volleyball match where we're cheering for, for our team. But when we have people whose who relationships begin to suffer because we were divided by a school dividing line. That's a very real and silly thing that's divided people. We're divided, dividing our community by denomination. I mean, like, like God-loving, Jesus-following Christians that go to another denomination, or maybe not even another denomination, they go to another church, and you might, have, you might have been in the situation. You're with a group of people, and someone starts talking about what another church in town is doing. And it's a great ministry. It's reaching people. It's a fantastic thing. And, and you or somebody in your group, instead of celebrating that, went, well, but you know they believe this. Well, you know what I heard? You know what I heard about that pastor? I mean, I'm sure that ministry that they're doing is great, but it's not us it's not we're we're divided luckily though luckily luckily there's no division or disunity inside the local church planted here though right i mean thank you jesus because i i heard like i have pastor friends and like there are some churches and some of their churches like like groups of people follow this pastor and minister and other groups of people follow this pastor and minister and some people follow this pastor and minister and when when the church is moving in a direction before they buy into where the church is going their church family this is what they do they go and they make sure that their personal pastor and minister is on board a little wink wink right you're you're good okay because if you're good i'm good because i'm not really unified i'm with you and I'm so glad, and we don't have things like that, right? Amen. Here, this is true. You will not believe this. There are some people, and pastor friends have told me, that in their churches, they have people that are angry, they're frustrated, they're, they're, they are disunified because of musical preference. <laughs> How crazy is it? Here's, get this. this is what the, and I'm, I'm talking with them like, work, work me through this, because I'm like, your, your church members like, you believe that God created the entire universe in six days? And they go, yeah. And I said, so they believe that this God, that creation worships, this God has been worshipped for thousands of years by different people groups on different continents through different eras 
with all types of different musical instruments or no musical instruments. They've done that for thousands of years. And like your people in your church think that the only way to worship God is with a guitar and some drums with quote unquote relevant music. Or, or you, have, you have people in your church, like, yeah, we, all, we also have people in our church too that, that they believe that like when, when Jesus like was with his disciples, so they pulled out the Baptist hymnal and that's how they worshiped. Now, can you believe that? It's crazy. That the God of all creation is only worshiped in one way. And then here's what's the ironic thing. It's always my way. Interesting. If my kids told me that, I would tell them, stop being selfish. That's what I tell them. Luckily, we don't have disunity here because disunity causes problems. We're going to see that in the scripture, but disunity causes us to lack synergy. You know what synergy is? Synergy is I can go accomplish something and you can go accomplish something, but if we work together, we can accomplish exponentially more. You might be familiar with Dave Ramsey. He wrote a book called Entre Leadership. And in that, he talks about a Belgian draft horse. Now, a Belgian draft horse, can, you can hook up a plow. You can hook up whatever you need. <laughs> I'm not from the country. You can hook up whatever you need to the, the horse. And it can pull 8,000 pounds. But if you get two Belgian draft horses, two that <coughs> excuse me, don't know each other, they weren't raised together, They've never pulled together, just, just a horse from here and a horse from there, and they've never met until the first time you put them together and you put the plow on both of them for the first time, 8,000 and 8,000. They don't pull 16,000. They can pull up to 24,000 pounds, the two of them. But get this. If you get rid of that one Belgian draft horse and you replace it with a Belgian draft horse that has been raised with and worked with the first draft horse, they don't pull 24,000 pounds. They can pull up to 32,000 pounds. That's synergy. But when there's disunity, when we don't have community, when, when we are focused on issues rather than people, division causes us to lose synergy. And we've been tasked by the Great Commission to go and make disciples. And we've got, we've got the fifth fastest growing city of our size in the nation which means there are potential disciples moving here all the time. You know what it's going to take for, for the, the body of Christ here to reach people? Synergy. Because I can't do it on my own. And you can't do it on your own. And even if we're working in the same direction but not unified, we cannot accomplish the same task as if we are unified and have community and we're moving forward together. Division ruins synergy and synergy slows the Great Commission down. So guess what Satan's interested in? Disunity. Disunity also causes us to have an elevated sense of self. Dr. Rebecca Bigler from the University of Texas did a study several years ago with some preschool children. And, and they, they took three classrooms of preschool children and they put half of the kids in blue shirts and half of the kids in red shirts. Now, they never kept them from intermingling. They, they played together on the recess. They, they did projects in class together. The only thing that was different than the regular day was half of them were blue, half of them were red for several weeks, every day for several weeks. <coughs> At the end of the study, they went back and started asking these preschoolers some questions. And they'd ask a, a preschooler, this little kid, 
who, who doesn't even recognize what's going on. And they would say, tell us, blue shirt child, tell us about the red shirts. Are the red shirts, are they nice? And the blue shirt kid would say, ah, most of them are nice. A lot of them are nice, not all of them. And they'd go, well, what about, what about the blue shirts? And the preschooler would say, oh, all the blue shirts are nice. They hadn't been coached in that. They hadn't been trained in that. They hadn't been meeting together as a group of blue to talk about morale and community. It was just, and Time or Newsweek, one of the major news articles did a cover story that said, is your child racist? That was kind of where the direction was going. What we discovered through that is that you and I, we are naturally drawn toward a homogenous unit, meaning I'm drawn towards people who look like me and who think like me. That's why if you would consider yourself self a little left politically, you probably watch like CNN. And if you consider yourself a little right politically, you probably watch Fox News because we feel comfortable with people who think like we think. That causes an elevation of self. It causes me to look at the people who see issues the way I see issues and, and, and I, I naturally will say, I've got it right. They're great people, but not all of them. And we begin to take people and put them in categories, and we stop seeing people, and we start seeing issues. So we're going to look this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. I'd love you to flip over there, because I want you to understand this. If we are going to find community, if we're going to find unity... We are going to have to love people more than we love issues. Let me say that for you one more time. True community means that we are going to have to love people more than we love issues. This is not a watered-down tolerance that all ideas are the same ideas and all ideas are true. That's the furthest thing from the truth. But I still have to love people who don't believe truth. And I have to love them as much as I love the people who think and see the world the way I see the world. So in Ephesians, we have this this letter written by a gentleman named Paul. Paul's the greatest missionary we've ever had. He he is uh, responsible for all kinds of church plants all around the Mediterranean rim during the time immediately following Jesus' death and resurrection. Paul went to prison for the gospel. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He had all kinds of of troubles as he went planting churches. One of the churches or a group of small churches he was connected with was in the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. Now, for us to understand the passage of Scripture we're going to dive into this week, I want you to understand what's happening in the church of Ephesus. It is not a church like this. There were not 1,300 people gathering in a nice building with youth ministries and children's ministries and senior adult ministries. It it was a, a struggling church that sat in the shadow of a giant pagan temple, the temple of Artemis. And these believers were gathered together to follow Jesus, and they were trying to figure out things. But inside this this group of people that have gathered, there were two main groups. There were people who were Jewish. They were Jewish Christians. But they had been raised with the Jewish law. They had been raised with strict religious expectations things that they could eat and couldn't eat, and and all kinds of things that they had to do to present themselves holy before God. They had met the Messiah, they had met Jesus, and realized that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law, and they have entered into a relationship 
to follow Jesus, but they come with a backstory of rules and regulations and some legalism and all kinds of expectations. And now they've come to church with another group of people that were Gentiles. They were the non-Jews. They'd grown up in a Greek culture. They might have grown up going to that temple of Artemis. They, they might have grown up in, in, in pagan worship in, in that day. I can't really tell you a whole lot about it because there's kids in the room. Can we leave it at that? They worship multiple gods, licentiousness, crazy type things. And now these people who came from a strict, what we'd call conservative, old-fashioned philosophy and viewpoint and worldview and religion have met with the people of the world, but they're both unified under Jesus Christ and they're trying to figure out life together and it's not going real well. In Ephesians chapter 4, when Paul writes this letter, there, there is no chapter and verse. He's writing this letter to them. We put in chapter and verse, but for our benefit, go to chapter 4, verse 1. And here's what Paul says. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, quite literally, he was in prison because of the gospel, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Paul says, listen, you, you identify with Jesus and you have been identified by Jesus. Like people, when, when people see you, they are seeing Jesus. And so Paul says, because of that, You've got to make this count. You've got to live in a way that's, that's worthy of being someone who is recognized as a follower of Jesus. Paul would say, you know what, hypocrisy happens. But we cannot be known by our hypocrisy because we have the blood of Jesus covering us. And people are looking at us as representations or ambassadors of Jesus. That's how you're identified. So you've got to live worthy of that identity. You've got to live worthy of that calling. And then he gives them how to do that in the midst of a group of people who see the world so utterly different. Verse 2, he says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And this morning, we're going to go back and we're going to look at the first couple of verses there, two and three. Over the next three weeks, this week and the next three, we're going to be looking at some one another verses to, to see what the Scripture says about how do we live with one another. So we're going to come back and, and hone in on the one another here. But I want us to see the full context of what Paul says to us as we are living in a world where we have different issues. Where we have different ways of seeing life. We have different backstories. And here's what he says. This is, this is how we live together. Verse 2, he says, with humility. Or actually, he says, with all humility. That verse, if you translate it out, it gives us a picture. It, it means a, a lowliness in mind. It, it's, it's the idea that I'm not self-righteous. It's the idea that I understand who I am in light of Christ. I recognize who I am and I recognize who you are, that Jesus is the head and I can be humble because Jesus is the head. I don't have to brag. I don't have to have all the power. I can live with you humbly. And he gives this next word that's connected to it often in the New Testament. He says, with all humility and gentleness. It's a hard word to translate out of the Greek. A lot, a lot of translations use the word meekness to help us 
get an idea of what Paul is asking us to do relationally with others. To be humble. He says to be meek. The, the idea of meek, if you want to get a picture of it, if you think of a horse, maybe one of those Belgian draft horses, if you've ever went up to a horse and you've put your hand on the side of that horse and you've patted it, what'd you feel? Solid muscle, right? I mean, a, a horse is a powerful animal. But you can walk up to that powerful animal that has those muscles that are defined and rippled, and that horse can stand there peaceful and still and move on command and stop on command because it is power under control. Somewhat of a picture of what Paul is asking us here with this word that's meekness. He says to be humble with each other. I don't have to be right. I don't have to brag because I know who Jesus is. I can be meek. I don't have to flex my muscle to get my way because I'm living with people who I would naturally, intrinsically, because we see the world different, try to flex my muscle and show you why you're wrong and why I'm right. Paul says that's not how you live in unity. He says we're to live with patience. We're we're to be slow to anger with other people. Let me just tell you. Prepared this message last week. Been thinking through it, praying through it the last two days, and even last night, going back over it. I've read this multiple times this week. That God has called us to live patient with one another, slow to anger. And just this morning, before I stepped on the stage, I had trouble being patient with people. This is about me as much as it is about you. Paul says this is our goal, this is our strive, to be humble, to be gentle or meek, to be slow to anger, to have patience with each other. He says, bearing with one another in love, which we're going to come back to, he says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Eager. Not eager to get your way, not eager to get everybody on your team. He says, eager to maintain unity. I mean, think of, think of a, a child on Christmas morning who is eager to get out of bed and come knock on everybody's door, eager to get everybody gathered around the Christmas tree to see what's there. And, and, and this idea is like, you know, what's under the Christmas tree is unity, that we're all together, that we love each other well, and we are eager to get here and we're eager to make it happen. Then when we find out that there's dissension and there's disunity, we don't run from it because we know what good things come from unity. We run towards it and we're eager to help people figure out how to live together. Eager to maintain unity. And he says this in the, in the bond of peace. That word there, the, the, that word bond, is not like taping something together or gluing something. It's a, it's a very powerful, strong word. It gives you a, a picture of like ligaments, how ligaments bond bones together. That, that's, that's what Paul is saying here, that we are bonded like that. We are bonded like a body in peace. That what holds us together is peace in our relationships. We read this passage of Scripture. If you ever read Ephesians, we can read right through verses 2 through 3 without slowing down to, to, to feel the heaviness of what Paul is asking us to do, to live together. And then we haven't even covered the, the kind of the, the one another. He says that we're to bear with one another. We're to support each other. We're to be able to lean back to back and hold each other up. So when we go out into a world that, that also has different ideologies and different viewpoints, 
And we struggle with that, 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 that we don't come here and fight. We come here to encourage and say, you know what? I'm going to be praying for you. <clears throat> I'm going to lift you up. But in order to do that, like a Jew and a Gentile gathered together with two drastically different previous worldviews, I'm going to have to bear with some things that you bring to the table. But that's why true unity requires me to love people more than issues. I've got to love you even if we see the world so absolutely different. You might have a person. You could be one of either of these people. There's a person that voted for Donald Trump, and there's a person who says that he's not my president. Those are issues. Those are issues. And Jesus has called us to bear with one another through Paul. To bear with one another, not get caught up in the issues. Some people say that the best way to handle a refugee crisis, to be like Jesus, is to open the doors of our country and bring all the refugees here. And another person <coughs> says, you know what, there's a better solution for that. There's another way to do it. Those are issues. And we've been called to love people and bear with people. Some people say an organ and a choir is the way to worship God. And some people say, no, a guitar and a bass and drums, that's the way to worship God. Those are issues, not people. And we've been called to bear with one another. To see past the issues, to see the person. To see Jesus in that person and to love them well. You know, Jesus said in John 13, he said that all, by this will all men know that you're my disciples. That's how everybody's going to know that you're following me. This is how you live, called, worthy of the calling. That you love, not issues, but that you love one another. We've got to be able to see people over issues. But what happens in 2017 is, is, is we take option B or option C. Option B is I don't agree with his issues or her issues or their issues. And I've already discovered that I have a group of people that I see the world the same way with. We, we agree on the issues. And so we're going to gather together and we're going to try to get our issues on the table before they get their issues on the table. And, and again, we're, now we're moving towards disunity. And now it becomes us and them. And the us and them is defined not by Jesus, but defined by our issues. And you know what that leads to? Anger. Bitterness, infighting, a lack of synergy, what we talked about earlier, an elevation of self because it's my way. That, that, that's option B for a lot of people. Option A being bearing with others. Option B is, nope, I'm going to push my issues forward. Option C, pretty popular in 2017 also, is you know what? Your issues don't match my issues. And even though we're the family of God, even though we've committed to be members of a church together, and to find synergy, because your issues and my issues don't match, I'm just going to leave this family and go try to find another family. I'm just going to go. I'll tell you this, option B and option C are not talked about in Ephesians 4. In fact, I'm not sure you can find option B or option C in Scripture. Because our call is to option A, to bear with one another. So what do you do? I, I would guess that for some of us in the room, there's some things that have been said as you look to the passage of the Scripture, the Holy Spirit has already started speaking to you. I've already confessed to you that He's already started speaking to me. 
I was looking over the message. I had to come back out this morning and pull up my phone and send a text message to two people and say, listen, I was frustrated and irritated and I didn't handle it the right way and I'm apologizing to you because I did not bear with other people well. Holy Spirit's already been all over me. So you might be sitting here and God's already spoken to you about what you need to do to apply the word of God to your life this week. And you need to run and do that. But if you're still processing that and going, what does that look like? Let me, let me give you some ideas that you could do to, to help bear with, with one another, okay? This may not be for you. You do what God's called you to do. But if you're still walking that, that road, maybe consider this. <laughs> consider spending some time with or building a bridge to someone who's not in your circle. You know, that's the benefit of having a multi-generational church. We've got all kinds of different ages. Because of our different ages, we see the world differently. And I'm not just talking about like teenagers and senior adults. Like I'm 41 and I can have a conversation with a 25-year-old millennial and my mind is absolutely blown. I'm like what? You, you think what? I mean, it's not, ju- it's not just older and younger. We got all kinds of different generations. Build a bridge across to one. Walk into a life group that's not yours with an open mind to say, hey, I, wanna, I just, I just want to I I see how the conversation about the Lord is going here. Invite somebody to lunch or coffee. Maybe there's somebody that you're an acquaintance with you don't know very well, but they're in a, they're in a different generation than you. you go, hey, I just, I just want to talk. I want to hear how you hear the world or here's even better. Tell me what the Lord is doing in your life. Tell me what Jesus is doing. You know what's amazing? We have people that are on two different viewpoints, different issues separated, and we go and we say, hey, tell me about what Jesus is doing in your life. And all of a sudden, the disunity starts to be unified under the testimony of what Jesus is doing. That, that, that's just something to think about. Could you walk out and, and, and try to, to meet somebody? You know, at Cal Berkeley in California, they're doing an, ex, uh, I don't know if you call it an experiment. They're just, it's pretty incredible. They're taking some first-year medical students, and as a part of the schooling process, before they're even getting into medicine, they're, they're requiring them to connect with a senior adult in the community. And some senior adults have signed up to be a part of the program. And they're just supposed to go get tea together, coffee together, supposed to just go and talk. Because here's what the, the medical school was discovering. That younger doctors were, being, were very frustrated with senior adult patients. The senior adult patients had, you know, because of age, they had multiple different ailments that they were wrestling with. And, and often because of fear and because of, of trying to, to cope with getting older and age, when the doctor would say, hey, go do this and you need to take this medicine, you need to do these things, Many times the patients didn't do it for whatever reason. And they realized that younger doctors were not connecting with compassion to their senior adult patients. And so Berkeley, before you got into it, they started putting some young people with some older people, not to talk medicine, just to talk life. So that as they became doctors and they began to have patients who were older or a different generation than them, they would not see them as problems or issues but they'd see them as people. Cal Berkeley can figure that out. The people of God ought to be able to figure that out. So maybe that's what you need. Maybe that's an application. God hasn't showed something to you. You just pray through that. Here's a second application that I think is good for all of us, whether God's told you something or not. We need to spend more time talking to God and less time talking to people. Now, I don't mean to like hermit yourself, but when it comes to issues, <coughs> what we tend to do my people see the world the way I see it, and we talk to each other, and we feed off each other, 
and that group of people, they have different issues. And instead of talking to the Lord about, Lord, why do they see the world that way? Or going to them, why do you see the world that way? We just talk amongst ourselves. That usually ends in gossip, usually ends in bitterness, certainly ends in disunity. So, so maybe your takeaway is that list of things, the grievances that, that you have against, quote unquote, those people, which you probably don't even know who those people are. And those people don't know who you are. Instead of dealing with those grievances with other people, what that just became a part of our conversation with the Lord. We just said, Lord, show me not my way or their way, but show me your way. Because Lord, what I want is to be eager for unity. Because God, I gotta, I gotta bear with some people that I don't see the world the same way with. And Lord, if I'm gonna bear with them, I'm gonna have to see them as people and not see issues. I had a friend close with this. Years ago at another church that was pretty politically liberal. And the church that I was serving on at the time was pretty politically conservative. And I, I mean, they were on two opposite ends of the spectrum. And this guy was a... was the vice chairman of the deacons of the church. He was in leadership and youth ministry way up there. Fantastic guy. His name was Jim. And one day, because I was always curious, and I said, Jim, I, I got to ask you a question because like, I, I know kind of what you believe politically and I know what you think about things. How do you survive here amongst all of these friends? Because they were his friends that they believe so different than you. <laughs> he said, well, let me give you an example. He said, one of the things that are very, very different for us is he said, I, I believe in welfare. And I'm very socially liberal when it comes to welfare. Most of my friends want to put measurements and stop gaps and they want uh, requirements for welfare. And so we are politically different. He said, but you know what? We both love people and we both want people who are impoverished to get out of poverty. He said, we just see how different we both want the same thing. And he said, I'm able to see past the hows to see the who's. Good word I did never forget. That people are more important than issues. In a moment, we're going to close our service and we're going to worship the Lord. I'd remind you what we said earlier that people all across the planet are worshiping in different ways today. But we're going to worship in the way, which is with our full heart and our full mind, a God who is worthy of all worship. And in a moment when we stand and sing, I want to invite you, if you have never made a decision to follow Jesus, if you've never met the person of Jesus, and you want to understand more about who he is, maybe somebody's been sharing the gospel with you, and, and, and you're ready to make a decision to follow Jesus, if you've got questions, I'm going to invite you to, to come and find somebody here. Liberty Hill in our gym venue, we'll have ministers down front to talk with. I want to invite you to come and make Jesus Lord of your life.